Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Today, we're talking about that most life-altering, sleep-depriving, heartwarming, and all-consuming of topics, parenting. In 2011, Washington, D.C. received kudos as Parenting Magazine's top American city for raising a child. The editors raved about the capital's history, its architecture, its monuments and museums, and its plethora of kid-friendly places to eat. Critics were quick to stand up and point out that Washington may not be ideal for all families, however, given D.C.'s struggles with crime and poverty and its ongoing issues with the public schools. So this week on the show, we're taking a look at parenting in the Washington region from a number of angles. We'll meet a couple who decided to use a surrogate mother in India, and they're not the only ones who've latched on to this international trend. We'll learn why a significant number of Washington women are choosing to parent without a partner. And talk about family bonding. We'll hear from a family that's spending the next year sailing around the world. But before we dive into those stories, we wanted to get your thoughts on bringing up kids in D.C. So we hit the streets and asked Washingtonians to describe their experience of parenting in one word. I'd say exciting. I'd say new. Unpredictable. Always changing. Never know what's coming around the corner. Uh, Stress. (laughs) Frustration. Growth. Commitment and uh, consistency. Innocence. It's a blessing. He's a blessing. It's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Those were parents in Cleveland Park and Shaw, speaking with Metro Connections' Lauren Landau. And we're curious, what's the one word you would use to describe parenting? You can share your child-rearing challenges and joys by emailing us at metro at wamu.org. Or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Now, anyone who's been in D.C. for a while knows how much it's morphed and evolved through the years. And according to the woman we'll meet next, so has parenting in the nation's capital. Leslie Morgan Steiner is a native Washingtonian who's penned three books, Crazy Love, Mommy Wars, and the forthcoming Baby Chase. She also spent two years writing On Balance, the Washington Post's parenting blog. These days, Leslie resides in Georgetown. But I recently met the mother of three in a different part of Northwest Washington, Wesley Heights, home of Horace Mann Elementary School, where Leslie spent many happy years as a student. So, Leslie, here we are standing on the playground of Horace Mann Elementary School. Can you take us back to your times here when you were growing up? Something that just particularly stands out in your mind and your memory? Well, one of the things I have to confess I remember most is all the boys that I loved to chase on this playground. (laughs) I would chase the boys and try to kiss them. Remember any names? Oh, so many. Phil, Chris Barker, Fletcher, Oakley, Patrick Waters. Oh, they were endless. Leslie says she's changed considerably since then, as has parenting in Washington, D.C. The one striking thing is that when I was a kid, there were not a lot of parents here on the playground. And right now, I would say the ratio of parents to kids is about 1 to 10. But when I was a kid, your parents never came to the playground. You know, there was an after-school sports guy who oversaw stuff. But you were free here, and the parents weren't watching you, and they weren't, you know, at the edge of the field with their smartphone taking pictures of you. How do you account for that change? Well, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She was raising four kids pretty much by herself. Our dad was not an involved dad. He was a, your typical 60s dad. He went to work every day, and we didn't see much of him. My parents had one car, and 
my mom was really busy, and she was too busy with four kids to be after us all the time. And starting in first grade, we walked to school, we walked home for lunch, we walked back to school. All of our friends had this kind of freedom. And what's different now is that families are much smaller. You know, most families have two or maybe three kids, and the parents have the ability to keep a much closer eye on a smaller number of kids. And dads are much more involved, so they're doing a lot more. So I think that that's really what explains the rise of helicopter parents in the, in the space of just one generation. It's seen as bad parenting to let your kids go free. But I tell you, it was one of the most glorious parts of my childhood, was roaming around this playground every day after school, or Battery Kimball Park was close by, and I, would, I was the neighborhood dog walker, so I was there almost every day as well. And a few bad things happened, nothing serious, you know, very minor things, like the time I lost five dollars on this playground and I couldn't find it and it was a fortune I think I'm still gonna look for it today maybe it's around here somewhere (laughs) I'll help you (laughs) you know and very minor problems but nothing like what I think parents are terrified of today they're so afraid of abductions and other things and and I I think I had a better childhood I didn't wasn't necessarily aware of it at the time but I had a better childhood growing up in Washington DC than my own kids have today what about parental involvement in schools was that something you saw when you were a child no, not at all. You know, here at Horace Mann, and then I, once I graduated from Horace Mann, I went to the Murray School, just a couple of miles from here. And I don't remember my parents ever being there, except the day that I graduated. And I, you know, now, as a parent myself, I am at my kid's school sometimes three or four times a day, more than my parents were there in a month or even a year. It's so radically different. Something I wanted to ask you, because we, uh, we have something called the PIN, the Public Insight Network, and we asked a lot of our listeners to chime in on the Public Insight Network about what it's like to be a parent in Washington. And an overwhelming response we got from them was about the competitive pressure they feel to get their kids to excel in school. Is that something that you see being a fairly new development? Have parents here always been so gung-ho to the point of, I don't know, SAT prep classes in sixth grade? Uh, I think that this has really, really changed over the last 20 years or so. It's so competitive here, and parents and thus their kids are so worried about doing well in school and getting into not just a college, but a very, very good college. And when I was growing up, we just really didn't think about it very much. My parents both went to Harvard. And so there was always this idea that if we were really good kids and worthy of our parents, we would too. But I think, again, we were unusual. And I don't know exactly why that has changed so much. Um, I think it's changed around the country, but probably even more so in Washington. And I wish it were still the way that it, that it was when I was growing up, where especially at the school that I went to, Murray, it was the teachers really were very interested in us being who we were, not fitting some mold of doctor, lawyer, business person. We had so much freedom to be more creative. And I didn't know what a special time it was that I was growing up. I just thought it was just my childhood. But now I look back and I say, well, that was priceless to grow up in a place where my parents were able to give us a lot of freedom and where I was able to live in this vibrant city with, you know, it felt like politicians and newspaper reporters coming out of my ears, and to be exposed to that all the time. When you were writing for the Washington Post, could you sort of characterize the kinds of people who would write to you? Was there something specifically D.C. about these people? They were very well educated, I have to say that. They were really, really educated, and they were intensely into how they were raising their own kids, They were also very opinionated. You know, one of the things that really surprised me about 
writing for On Balance was that people who didn't have kids still had really strong opinions. They still cared about how we raise our kids. And I'm not sure if that's a Washington, D.C. phenomenon, probably, or maybe it's just an American thing, that we really care very deeply about how how other people raise their kids in a way that is wonderful and also can drive you really crazy. And that's not something your mom dealt with. My mom did not deal with that at all. But, you know, the kind of thing that I deal with as a parent sometimes would never have happened to me as a kid. For instance, when I was starting to let my kids have that little freedom to walk to the corner store or to the CVS, on more than one occasion, other parents called me to report that my children were crossing the street by themselves. And they were calling to criticize me. There was no doubt about it. And my mom died two years ago, but I back, you know, 10 years ago, I would tell her that the neighbors were doing this, and she would just howl with laughter. The, the thought of, on Klingle Street, where I grew up, another parent calling her to say, you know, Leslie is crossing the street by herself. You know, my mom would have been, that's what I want her to do. And I think one thing I learned growing up in this corner of Washington, D.C., was that I could definitely handle the world. I could handle this teeny little part of it. And I'm grateful that my mom raised me that way and also that D.C. was that kind of place at that time. Well, Leslie Morgensteiner, thank you so much for coming out to the playground and talking with me today. It's my pleasure anytime. Leslie Morgensteiner is the author of Crazy Love, Mommy Wars, and the forthcoming book, Baby Chase. She also helmed the Washington Post's parenting blog, On Balance. And we want to know how you think parenting in Washington has changed over the years. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or via Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. So these days, not only is parenting changing, but so is how people are becoming parents. Jonathan Wilson brings us this story on couples facing fertility issues and how a certain option for conceiving a child may take them halfway around the world. The second floor of Crystal Travis McRae's townhome in Laurel, Maryland, is about as full of playtime paraphernalia as a room can get. Crayons, lightsabers, Dora the Explorer dolls, it's all here, and it needs to be. McRae has a four-year-old son, Mark, along with two-year-old twins, Alec and his sister, Elle. Daddy? Yeah, where's Daddy, Elle? Where? Where? Where is he? Where? I don't know. Where did he go? I love being a mom. I always wanted to be a mother. It's a lot more work than what I thought. But I really, I enjoy it, and I'm, I'm glad that the kids are here. It's made a huge difference in this part, of this journey of our lives. But arriving at parenthood wasn't an easy journey for Crystal and her husband, Colin. She is 50 and he is 52, and they only started trying after Crystal turned 40. A couple of miscarriages led them to the process of in vitro fertilization, or IVF. I had been pregnant twice, and then I started an IVF protocol, and I didn't like the chemicals, so I decided that I don't want to do that since we have to use an egg donor anyway. Colin and Crystal next explored adoption and even began taking their county's 27-week adoption class. But they soon discovered that Howard County had few infant children available. Then Crystal remembered an article a friend had sent her about surrogacy in India. So I googled one doctor, sent her an email, and she replied. And I said, okay, well, we'll catch a plane and we'll, we'll see you in two weeks just to see if this is legit. 
So that, that's where we started. There is little reliable data about international surrogacy and exactly how many couples are using surrogate mothers in other countries to carry their children. But the Council for Responsible Genetics says the market for surrogacy is exploding here in the U.S., with more than 5,000 babies born this way between 2004 and 2008. But if surrogacy is a new area of growth in our country, it's a well-oiled money-making machine in India, where many estimates say surrogacy generates $2.3 billion a year for the Indian economy. Crystal explains how the process worked for her. An embryologist creates the embryos. So we had an egg donor, colon sperm, a surrogate. You can pick the egg donor that you want. Some people in the U.S. will bring an egg donor with them or will have eggs shipped. Or you can use an Indian egg donor. We use an Indian egg donor and my husband's sperm. The process gave the McCrae's what Crystal calls a tri-racial family. Crystal is black, Colin is white, and their children are half Indian and half white. Choosing this international route also ended up being a bargain. It is a lot more expensive here. In this area, for a, a surrogate, it would, um, it would be about $125,000. In India, you're probably going to, for a singleton birth, you're going to pay about thirty to 35000 for a singleton birth. But the concept of international surrogacy isn't without controversy. Critics point out that the industry's growth in India has much to do with lax regulation and the absence of legal protection for surrogate mothers. Many also say the future of the industry points to large-scale baby farms in poor countries, where women can easily be lured into surrogacy by their $7,000 cut of the fees. Crystal and her husband Colin see it differently. I feel like it's a win-win situation for the surrogate as well as the intended parents. The surrogates, the, the amount of money that they make, most will never make that kind of money again in their lifetime. If they make $7,000, that's like hitting the lottery for them. When you give somebody the chance to buy a house who never had a chance to buy a house, uh, it's not a high price to pay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. After Mark was born, Crystal and Colin decided he should have a playmate or two. They decided to use the same surrogate once more. They ended up with twins, Elle and Alec. Crystal has become something of an expert for Western couples looking into surrogacy in India. And after advising dozens of families on how to do what she did, she decided she'd like to get paid for her services. She now has a consulting business and travels back and forth quite a bit. Colin says surrogacy should be higher up on the list of options for many families. I think the misunderstanding about it is that it is the bottom of the barrel. You've got to go through every other option before you get to that. I think that's just wrong, and it should be one of the main options that people think about. Though Crystal is often busy answering questions for other prospective parents nowadays, she still has questions about her own path to motherhood. She herself grew up as a foster child, never knowing her biological parents. Sometimes, even in the back of my mind now, I often wonder if I put it off because I was afraid that I would have children that turned out like my biological family members who I didn't know but um, know that, that they didn't, weren't in a good place. Alec, draw a circle for me. As for her own children, Mark has already been back to India and understands that he was born there. Crystal says it will be the same for the twins. And as a person who was adopted, I feel like you need to tell the children early on, even though our children were not adopted, but they do need to know how they got here. And what a story they'll always have to tell. 
I'm Jonathan Wilson. This story came to us via WAMU's Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their experiences with us and a way for us to reach out for input on stories we're working on. You can find more information about the Public Insight Network by visiting metroconnection.org slash PIN. Time for a break now, but when we get back, D.C. parents and teachers bring the classroom into the home. In order for those relationships to flourish, you need to know one another. The best way to get to know one another is to spend time talking. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're focusing on parenting, and in a few minutes we'll hear from a mother and father who are parenting their daughters aboard a 62-foot sailboat as they venture around the world. First, though, let's meet 37-year-old Stacy Pearl. When Stacy was 34, she found herself single and imagining how the rest of her 30s would play out. Well, I was doing the math in my head. I was like, okay, I would have to meet the right person in the next year or two. So that would bring me to like 35 or 36. Two years of dating, one year of engagement, a year or so of wedded bliss. And like, I'm close to 40. And that's only if I actually meet the person. I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket, literally. (laughs) Um, And I thought, well, I have a lifetime to find a husband. You know, I don't have a lifetime to have kids. Now, Stacy's long known that the average woman's fertility begins to decline in her mid-30s. So she decided to get this show on the road on her own. To tell the rest of the story, here's Metro Connection's Emily Berman. Not here. No, no, no. Not here. No, no, no. Stacy Pearl is on her living room floor, guiding her daughter's hands as she sorts out shapes. Good job, you got the square in. Even though Stacy technically became a mother on her own, that's not how she describes it. To her, it was a community experience, especially picking out her sperm donor. I emailed out the profiles of the people that I was seriously considering, like to my closest friends. And I was like, okay, everybody read everything and like, tell me what you think. Even during her insemination treatment, which is called an IUI. Everyone was right there with her. It was fun. Like, my phone was, like, exploding with messages, people, like, cheering me on as I was laying there. She was ready, mentally and financially, to bring a new baby into this world. Except she didn't have one baby. She had two. And that, she says, was a problem. <laughs> it was quite a shock when there were two in there. Stacy works at a public charter school. I don't make a lot of money. She calculated she could afford daycare for one baby. With two... She'd be about $1,000 over budget every month, even at the least expensive daycare center. It was going to be too much. And to be a single mom with twins and not have a lot of financial resources is really hard. Stacy's mom, Anita, came down to help after Stella and Sadie were born. 
Before maternity leave ended, Stacy's mom had decided to retire and move her belongings down from Michigan to become a live-in nanny for Stacy and her girls. I asked her, well, why did you make the... I'm going to cry. Okay. <laughs> um, I said to my mom, why, why are you doing this? Like, why did you decide to stay? Because it wasn't the money. Because my parents could have given me the thousand dollars a month. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really emotional. She was she was working twenty four seven. I just couldn't leave her. On weekdays, she's out of the house at six forty five in the morning to drive from her home in Kensington, Maryland, to a public charter school in Southeast DC. Most nights, she gets home around six thirty. For me, the hardest thing would have been having the girls and raising them, and not sharing the day to day with somebody else. To be excited or to, you know, be frustrated or to talk about like the new words that we heard for the day. And so to be able to share that with my mom has been great for me and, you know, obviously made us even closer. There's no one agency or organization that tracks the number of women choosing to get pregnant without a partner. But Dr. Eric Levins with Shady Grove Fertility in Rockville, Maryland, says about 5% of his patients are women like Stacy Pearl. I think that's been a pretty dramatic increase over the last years, and I think it's ever-increasing. And with more and more women choosing this route, Dr. Levin says, there's less of a stigma, especially in the D.C. region. Just ask Claire Sasson and her daughter, Danielle. Some people ask why I don't have a dad. I've told my friends this story, and my mom's friends know because my mom told them. Danielle, or Danny, is in fourth grade and lives with her mom in Sherlington, Virginia. Okay. Do you want to get a plate, honey? They just got home from Sunday school, and they're making lunch. And then do you want to get the provolone cheese? Claire was 42 when she conceived Danny using in vitro fertilization. I used to call her my little in vitro baby. I knew that when she went to preschool, she would eventually notice and see that we're different. We're a different family. And she did. While she was in preschool at one point, she asked me, you know, if she had a daddy. And I said, no, you don't. I said, families come in all different shapes and sizes. I said some have a mommy and a daddy, some have two mommies, some have two daddies. And in this case, you have a mommy who loves you very much. And and that was it. Claire says her friends always joke that she knows more about her sperm donor than they know about their own husbands. And these days, Claire and Danny talk about him quite a bit. He has olive skin, like Danny. He played the trumpet, and Danny does too. There are kids in her class that have two dads. There are kids that have a mom. It's not odd that, do you think, do you ever feel odd? No, I just feel like a regular, because like, like, none of my friends really care. Claire says she feels like a regular, too. I see myself as a mom with a child, and I happen to be a mom by choice. She mostly worries about Danielle's future and making sure she's bringing in enough money. But these worries, she says, are the same things all parents worry about. Being a parent is the toughest job, but it's also the best job ever. Taking on that job and becoming Danny's mom, Claire says, is the smartest decision she's ever made. I'm Emily Berman.
Now, once you have children, a key part of raising them is educating them, right? But for many families, figuring out how to reinforce what kids are learning in school is easier said than done. And that's where the D.C. public schools are increasingly stepping in. They're partnering with a private foundation to connect teachers and families in new ways. Kavita Cardoza brings us this story on what works and what doesn't when it comes to getting parents involved in their kids' education. Michelle Alexander and Catherine Schaefer are sixth-grade teachers at Jefferson Academy in southwest D.C. They're in the middle of a home visit, listening to their student Cameron play the cello. musical talent is a little titbit about him. These teachers wouldn't normally have known. They also learn he wants to play basketball, he's very loving with his baby brother, and his grandmother helps raise him. They continue talking with his mother, Jamila Johnson. Cam participates to the point where if he's not called on, man, does he sometimes get frustrated. Yeah. And I, I would rather have 10 cams than, than anything else. Well, he's my good son. He's very helpful with me, does homework, knows how to work the computer. He shows me things I don't even know. In the past, interaction with parents was almost always one way. Often the meeting was about bake sales, report cards or discipline. Kristen Ergood is the founder of the Flamboyant Foundation, which is working with teachers in 20 D.C. schools. She says she envisioned a two-way exchange where teachers also learn from parents. They're purely there to build a relationship with the family and ask the family, what are your hopes and dreams for your child? What do I need to know so that I can be a great teacher for your child? That in and of itself changes the dynamic radically. On some home visits, D.C. teachers have learned a student's entire family lives in a single room. Sometimes a child has no books at home or the family speaks a different language. They also find out a child's nickname, meet siblings, and hear family stories. All those tiny details form relationships that can help improve a student's learning. The Flamboyant Foundation spends approximately $45,000 a year in each of the 20 schools. That money helps pay teachers extra for these home visits and funds educational materials they send home to parents. Back at Jamila Johnson's house, Michelle Alexander and Catherine Schaefer hug Johnson before they leave. Well, no, so I'm back. Thank you. Thank you. And anything oh, at all, no. just call. All right. Multiple research studies have found the benefits of family engagement on a child's academic performance are consistent, positive, and convincing. It leads to higher test scores, better attendance, and improved graduation rates. And Natalie Gordon, principal at Jefferson Middle School and Academy, says she's already seeing the benefits of what she calls the exhausting but awesome effort. Gordon says these home visits are a huge priority for her, especially since about half her staff is new this year. Last year, her school had 250 suspensions. This year, she says they're on track to cut that rate in half. Students are surprised that their teachers are coming into their homes, but because of that, they will check their behavior a little bit more in the school building because they know my teacher might come back. <laughs> Rena Johnson is principal at Stanton Elementary School in Southeast D.C. She says her teachers are conscious of how they talk even when setting up the visit. We're calling them mom and dad, right? We're not saying Mr. or Mrs. Pickering. That helps a lot. Because of safety concerns, teachers always go in pairs. 
and they don't take notes. For some of our families, there are visits that when folks are writing stuff down, it's social services. And our families, they don't need any more of that. Stanton Elementary saw a more than 10% drop in the truancy rate after doing home visits. They also attribute the school's doubling of reading scores and tripling of math scores to their work with parents. Outside the school, several parents waiting for the bus said they have bad memories of their own educational experiences or haven't felt welcome in schools in the past. This effort seems to be rebuilding those relationships one parent at a time. Letitia Bragg is the mother of two children in the school. In the past, I did feel like I was just another parent. Just another number, no one of no importance. My children wouldn't be, uh, you know, priority to a teacher. As of now, I'm satisfied. I really am. The first part of the flamboyant strategy for family engagement is building relationships. The second is giving parents tools so they can help their child learn. This is your graph. All right, so take a little moment to kind of look and see where your child is. Almost 40 parents of first grade children crowd into the library at Bancroft Elementary School in Northwest DC. Principal Zakia Reed says parental involvement isn't a problem at her school, which has almost 100% attendance for school events. But she still felt parents were not involved in their child's academic success. It's, it's hard to tell a parent your child's two, three grade levels below. And I think teachers say things that are not very clear. Oh, he's struggling. He's a really nice boy. So everything kind of gets mixed in. Now all communication is translated. And teachers show parents a simple, clear graph so they can see, for example, how many words their child knows and what the goal is. Teachers hand out stacks of post-it notes with Spanish and English words written on them. Stick those notes above their bed. It's important that it's the first thing they do in the morning is read those sight words, and it's the last thing they do before they go to bed. Beth King is a parent here and says this new outreach has helped make her accountable. It put more responsibility on my desk as well, because now I know that, oh, I can't just send her to school and that's it. Like, I really have to come home and practice. And there's a lot to practice. Teachers play a bingo game with parents, give them flashcards, and show them math puzzles to try out at home. Parent Monica Sanchez says she isn't always sure how to help her child with schoolwork. Now she does. It just felt like we were the desert without no rain. And I think the kids, they deserved it. They deserve, they've, they've been waiting for this. The evening ends with a rousing raffle along with prizes. Principal Reed looks at her parents talking about word lists and math problems and finally answers a question I asked earlier. Why would a principal with so much on her plate already want to deal with hundreds more adults? I think that's the only way we're going to do it. I, I really think it, it's the only way that we're really going to make a difference with students. The challenge for D.C. schools will be continuing these successes into higher grades, where families are typically less involved, scaling up this effort so it's more than just 20 carefully chosen schools, and continuing to fund this work if the flamboyant grants are no longer available. But for now, Reed and others involved say this is a crucial first step. I'm Kavita Cardoza.
This next story is about family bonding, as in spending a year in a 62-foot seaborne vessel together, family bonding. Okay, here's the scoop. Eastern Troy residents Richard and Jessica Johnson have been wild about sailing for as long as they can remember. And for the next year, they're bringing their kids, Emma and Molly, on a round-the-world sailing adventure, setting off from the little town of Oxford, Maryland. The family recently took Tara Boyle inside the final preparations for their expedition on their sailboat, Elsie. And she brought us this audio postcard. Hello, this is Richard Johnson on Elsie, and um, we're getting close to departure. We're going to take the next year and sail to New Zealand, basically in 10 legs. This is Jessica. So I'm here talking to Molly, and uh, Molly is one of our deckhands. She's nine. And Molly, you're getting ready to go on a long trip. So how are you feeling about... um, Heading out uh, into the ocean on Elsie. I don't want to leave my friends here, but I also want to go on all these adventures and swim in coral reefs. So you sailed uh, about 10,000 miles back from New Zealand with your family on Elsie, and now you're heading out again. What are some of the things that you've learned from um, living on a sailboat? I've learned how to tie some knots and what direction north, south, east, west is in. And I have learned lots how to sail a sailboat. So uh, let's take it up. Let's take the dinghy up on the jib halyard. So if you slack it off, I'll go hook it up. All right, going up. Well, I'm looking around the uh, bridge deck house right now, and even though we're only about 10 days away from departure, it doesn't, um, doesn't exactly look like a boat ready to go to sea. It pretty much works out that it all just kind of comes down to the last minute. Thanks for calling Verizon. Have you made the other calls yet? I think I got everything done. Um, let me see, we got the Netflix canceled, the New York Times subscription, that's gone. We've checked in with the car and home insurance. We have the boat insurance to deal with tomorrow. So Molly, when you're living on the boat, um, you don't have a, a very big bedroom and you live in a cabin that you share with your sister and you have a, a bunk. Can you um, describe what it's like to live in a cabin on a boat? First of all, our mattresses feel like they're made of concrete, which my dad likes to say, a slab of concrete. And it's kind of small, but me and my sister, Emma, decorate it with lots of posters, and I have a bulletin board with calendars and all this other stuff. You get to see a lot of the sky in the daytime and in the nighttime. Is there any any favorite time that you'd like to be out on deck and look at the sky? I sometimes um, might sleep out, sleep outside, and look at the stars at night when we're anchored. Sometimes the most relaxing time is once you cast off the dock lines and you can kind of get into your shipboard routine. Yeah, there's lots and lots of lots of things to pay attention to, and we look forward to getting underway. 
That was Jessica, Richard, and Molly Johnson. The family, which includes another daughter, Emma, is spending the next year sailing around the world. They're bringing along passengers on various legs of the trip, so if you'd like to check out their itinerary, head to our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, parenting naked mole rat style. And the first solid food they eat is uh, feces. Yeah, okay. It's coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Parenting is our theme today, and thus far we've been exploring the benefits and challenges of child-rearing in Washington and looking at the new methods couples are pursuing to become parents, uh, human parents, that is. In this next story, we're going to head to another part of the animal kingdom and meet some parents whose techniques are, how do I say this, um, a little bit unorthodox? Sabri Benashore brings us the sitcom-like story of naked mole rats. Lisa, keep digging. Yes, my queen. Dig. Oh, I am not. Well, for now, this show only exists in my head, but the real world of mole rats is actually even stranger. Just ask David Kessler, who manages these creatures at the Smithsonian's National Zoo. Can you describe them for me? I think that, I mean, I would do that, but I feel like I might be unkind. They're cylindrical. They have very little hair. They don't have any fur. They've got some hair between their toes, like hobbits. And they actually have some hair inside of their mouth, which keeps their, uh, their mouth nice and clean while they dig, because they dig with their teeth. Those are some big teeth. Those are incredibly big teeth. They're rodents, so their incisors, which are their front teeth, are constantly growing. They can chew through concrete. They could bite through a human hand. I've seen them do both. They are fleshy and, well, naked. Imagine a pink, practically eyeless rat that looks and feels like the back of your elbow. They're virtually blind because they spend their whole lives underground. Their skin is very thin and wrinkly and almost translucent. They're from East Africa, and they spend their time burrowing around, searching for hard-to-find giant roots to eat. And when they don't have roots for dinner, they eat... Feces. The young will actually solicit stool from adults, and uh, that's their first food. Yeah, okay. Why do they eat poop? Why not? Uh, Well, they live underground. They live in an area where they don't get any free water, so they get all their moisture from food. And it's a good early source of solid food. Mmm, poop. Anyway, another thing that's special about their families is they live kind of like honeybees or termites. They are eusocial mammals, which means that they live like social insects do. They live in large groups of 20 to 300 animals called colonies, and there's only one breeding female in the group who's called a queen, one to three breeding males. He's not the king. He's just the breeding male. And everyone else is a worker or a soldier. The queen is different from everyone else. She's bigger, longer, her vertebrae are thicker, and she's the only one who has babies, like 20 at a time. But everyone helps take care of the babies, so it takes a village to raise a mole rat pup. But it's kind of a 
tyrannical village. The queen maintains her tunnel kingdom through violence. Like, she beats up on everyone. Stan Browdy is a senior lecturer at Washington University in St. Louis. He studied naked mole rats for 30 years. He says living with mama mole rat is so stressful for her daughters and siblings that their reproductive systems shut down. That's how she stays queen. Under stress, physiological stress, but also emotional stress, there's inhibition of the reproductive side. So in a small colony mole rat system, the queen physically beats up on her daughters, shoves them around, bites them, and physically stresses them and shuts down their reproduction as long as they're in her burrow. Now, this kind of setup, or any kind of hive colony situation, posed a challenge for Darwin back in the day. He has a chapter specifically entitled Problems with the Theory. He brought up queens and workers in honeybees. How could you get different morphs of workers if the workers were sterile? How do non-reproducing worker mole rats or bees pass their worker mole rat genes to the next generation? And how is it in their interest to be worker mole rats if they don't get to reproduce? The, the basic answer is there are other venues to spreading genes like the genes for being a worker than just having offspring. So if you spend your life producing lots of siblings, then that can be more successful than spending your life producing a smaller number of offspring. And if you're the queen, it's in your interest to have helpers ensure the survival of your babies, babies who could one day split off to start new colonies. So there may be a lesson in all this for human parents. Parenting is difficult, especially when resources are tight. So don't be afraid to enslave your family to build up a fear-based empire in the pursuit of large tubers. I'm Sabri Beneshore. Want to check out these charming critters for yourself? You can find photos on our website, metroconnection.org. Our final story today is about an art exhibit, one that holds appeal for parents and kids alike. It's an exhibition of work by the painter Roy Lichtenstein, whose canvases, some people say, look as if they come from the pages of comic books. NPR special correspondent and Metro Connection contributor Susan Stamberg headed to the National Gallery of Art to learn the story behind Lichtenstein's famous pop art images. You're not supposed to use cell phones in museums, but at the Lichtenstein show, I just had to make a call. This is Susan Stamberg from National Public Radio. I'm at an exhibition of works by Roy Lichtenstein, and uh, one of them is called Desk Calendar, something he made in 1962, and your phone number is on it. Could you call me back? Never got a call back, but it was a real number, just as the date on the open black and white pages of the desk calendar in the painting, Monday, May 21, was the real 1962 date. Just as real comics inspired his 60s works, angsty comic frames, often of ladies in distress, National Gallery curator Harry Cooper inspects one with me. A beautiful, very fraught-looking woman. They're all fraught. Mm -hmm. She's got a furrow between her 
eyebrows, and mm-hmm. she's holding on with both hands yes. to the telephone, yeah. and she's saying, oh, all right. And you know she's talking to some fellow. What I like about that painting is the way she is holding the phone, and she's caressing that phone, and I think in a way she would rather have a relationship with that receiver than with whoever is, is on the other end of the line. Uh, yeah. wonder what he's saying to her and what she's agreeing to. Oh, all right. I don't know. That, you know and one thing about, about Roy is that he, he really looked hard for these frames that had a kind of crux of a story in them. And he lets us imagine the backstory and what might happen next. Interesting, because he uses such a cold mechanical process. Dot, dot, dot. He was really painting digital pixels before there were pixels to evoke such strong emotions. Dot, dot, dot. So, did he paint each one by hand? No, he didn't. In fact, you could argue he didn't paint any of them (laughs) by hand. Lichtenstein used various kinds of stencils with perforated dot patterns. He'd brush his paint across the top of the stencil, and the colors dropped through as perfect circles, and elevated commercial images from comics, ads, into high art. In the 1960s, young American artists were looking for a way to make their marks. Andy Warhol did it with soup cans. Roy Lichtenstein did it with dots. Inventing pop art. Comic book frames were his starting point. But he wasn't making exact reproductions. He's always making these alterations. Mm -hmm. He did it because he felt these things could be improved. And they weren't quite art. But he could make them art. By changing a hue, widening a line, expanding the dots? Tiny things that would help make a really iconic image, an image that I think would stand up, you know, would last on the wall, last in our memories. You can always tell a Lichtenstein the vocabulary of dots, and he makes you laugh. Another fraught woman, this one drowning, thinks, I don't care, I'd rather sink than call Brad for help. The frauds are from a series on romance. In another series, Brush Strokes, he addresses that basic element of art. In 1993, he told WHYY's Fresh Air that he was painting the idea of a brush stroke. You do not for a minute think it's real. You think it's a picture of a brush stroke, and, you know, that's a kind of absurd thing to do. It has that built-in absurdity, and that's the reason I like it. Dorothy Lichtenstein, the painter's widow, says her husband dotted beyond the post-World War II abstract expressionists, Pollock with his drips, de Kooning with his brushed sweeps. But he kept the past in his rearview mirror. Certainly his brushstroke paintings were an ode in some way to abstract expressionism. Yeah. But, I mean, you could look at the history of art as the history of the brushstroke as well. Lichtenstein had some trouble making brush strokes, but he used his dots to reproduce some of his greatest brushy predecessors. Monet, for instance, his wonderful Rouen Cathedral series of the late 1890s. In 1969, Lichtenstein's pale, dotty cathedrals become glowing shimmers. Dorothy Lichtenstein says her husband went to museums in search of the masters. Well, it was actually great going to a museum with Roy because everything was kind of grist for his mind. He was always looking at paintings and art in a way as to what he might, how he might be able to transform it. 
Picasso was his hero, above all. Matisse was right up there, um, but it was really Picasso. Um, he attacked first. Attacked, curator Harry Cooper says, not tackled. He was paying his respects to Picasso and Mondrian and Monet and others, but... It's not just homage, it's also bringing these, these artists down to the level of dots and comic... Uh, vocabulary. Is that a cruel act, bringing them down? I think so. I think artists are always very uh, anxious about their predecessors, uh, the anxiety of influence. So what he said about Picasso is that uh, he realized that uh, he could make it his own, and, and, and that felt good. That's all, folks. Sorry. Curator Cooper says Lichtenstein has had a real impact. We can't go anywhere without seeing it. Pop art, I mean, he's been taken up in design, in larger culture. Uh, Nobody has, has imitated him, but he really opened up and showed that pop art was not just a gimmick, not just a joke. Maybe, but you'll still get some good laughs at the National Gallery's Roy Lichtenstein retrospective until mid-January. That was NPR special correspondent and occasional Metro Connection contributor Susan Stamberg. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Sabri Benashore, Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, and Tara Boyle, along with NPR's Susan Stamberg. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our brand new intern is Rachel Schuster, whom we're thrilled to welcome aboard here at Metro Connection HQ. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use if you go to our website, that's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories, and if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link, or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you our annual show on traditions. We'll meet a local family that manages to hold on to weekly rituals despite living in far-flung corners of the globe. We'll learn how Washingtonians with both Jewish and Christian backgrounds blend and respect both faiths at this time of year. And we'll visit a day shelter with a brand new tradition, bringing clients' stories front and center on the D.C. stage. We're always trying to find new voices in theater and and new stories to tell. And we've got a wealth of stories and voices, so it seemed like a natural connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.